This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Jesse James, the mastermind behind West Coast Choppers and Discovery Channel's hit series Monster Garage. Famous for building custom motorcycles, James made bigger headlines for his marriage and eventual breakup with actress Sandra Bullock. Why decide to go to rehab? I'm the guy that like just ruined my marriage because I banged some stripper. When we caught up with him in 2015, the father of four left Hollywood for Texas and had since rebuilt his life with a firearm business and shared the secret to his unique designs. That keeps people from fully copying what I do. The California native also shed light on his tough relationship with his dad. I remember my dad reared back just Ow, like hit me in the nose. And the promising football career that slipped away. If I have one like fault in my life that I wish I could redo, it's that one. It was that regret on the gridiron that we discussed first when we sat down in Austin. So I actually, I, I wanted to start off by talking to you about something that I'd imagine most people don't know about. Just how talented a football player you were growing up. What schools did you get scholarship offers from? Uh, every, every Division I school in the country. So, Wow. You know, which at the time, outside linebackers were, were, wasn't a big plethora of them. And, like, you know, Lawrence Taylor was, you know, that kind of size, you know, was awesome. Like 6'3", 240, fast. And I was all of those. So I, like, you know, a big, fat white, white boy was pretty rare. You know, and I could run. I had like a four six five forty, and then I could run like a four seven backwards. You know, and so I w- I had all the right pieces. I just like kind of nullified all of it with my right. non disciplined lifestyle that was not football. W- what were your goals at, at that point, football wise, when you're getting all these scholarship offers? I don't really know that I had anything. I didn't have anything. To did f- I mean? Did you want to play pros eventually? Um, Oh, yeah, okay. totally, yeah. Okay. And I saw myself doing it, and okay. I, I think I was big and fast enough that I could, like, it wasn't really a pipe dream, so much so that I never had anything to fall back, back on. You know, everybody, oh, make sure you get, I don't care about school, right? like, you know, or any of that stuff. How often would you have to bring out your birth certificate when you were younger? Every, every game, every Saturday morning, like Pop Warner, which it was RJTFL, which is Riverside Junior Tackle Football League, every game I had to bring my birth certificate. Really? Yeah. And, like, it was pretty, like, the negative press didn't start five years ago or whatever. It started, like, when I was in my early teens, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old when I started. I mean, I I was, like, 13. I had, like, a goatee. (laughs) Like, I look like I, like, as old as I do now, like, very early on. What would parents say? They were just like pissed, you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, partly because I would just like dominate kids and like, but there was also some other tough kids there too, you know, but uh, they'd take like razor blades, make the refs take, I had those early bike like arm pads, they'd like make them slice holes in them because parents complained I filled my pan pads with sand and then they have to have my birth certificate and then it's just... Like it was, it was probably like a glory for me then, you right. know, like I didn't. What positions did you play? Uh, in like all Pop Warner from when I was seven, eight years old until my senior year in college, I played offensive tackle 
a defensive end, middle linebacker, and all the special teams. Like I would never come off the field. So the high school, um, your freshman year, uh, what do you do to your star upper class quarterback who oh. <laughs> sucker punched you in the hallway in one of your first practices? Roger Ple Pebley, he walked by me and like elbowed me, bam. Just like, in the hallway? Just in the hallway, like elbowed me super hard in the ribs. And I just like, I remember like, I never made eye contact and I just like went, I mean it hurt and like came close to knocking the wind out of me. But he was like, he, I don't remember what he said, he said something because he had some friends around him and he was trying to be a tough guy. And then I just like kind of stumbled and just kept walking. <laughs> like I remember I like clenched up and then just never broke stride. I'm like, okay. But you're the young guy too. He's the... Yeah, and like he's the like captain. Right. You know, like, you know the type. The type with his uh, Letterman's jacket, like kind of bottom button and it's kind of pushed back. You know, that kind of dude with custom hair. Like I just... Well, so what did you do on the football um, field? I think I was playing defense and I like ran in and like sacked him and I just like, like, it was like, just, just got him down. I like held his face mask and just punched him on, like lifted it up and punched him in his jaw, like in, and like uh, uh, everywhere I could hit and not hit my hand. And like, he was almost like to the point of tears and everybody was like stunned and shocked. And that like set the tone for my whole high school <laughs> experience. You mentioned the non-disciplined lifestyle you had growing up that got in the way of the football, which is kind of amazing how determined and driven and the model type football player you were, complete opposite when you got uh, well, off the field. It was simple. If looking back now, it's crystal clear. You know, I had discipline because I had coaches who were my parental figures. Okay. At home, my dad was gone all the time. I was home from the time I got up until late at night every day, sometimes never come home. So like, I didn't have any reason not to get in trouble. I think if he was there, 90% of the stuff I did, I wouldn't have done, you know, because, oh, I'm gonna get in trouble. What do you recall from stealing Olympian Scott Hamilton's Porsche? <laughs> you know, I told him I was sorry. It's the only reason I did The Apprentice Oh, the only reason? Yeah, because okay. they asked me like the first four or five years, like, will you do it? Nah. Will you do it? Nah. And like they told, finally, I'm like, who's on it? Just out of curiosity. And they said, Scott Hamilton. I said, I'll do it. What'd you say to him when you I waited till the night he got fired and I walked out and all the producers got really mad. Like, oh, you can't leave the set. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But I went out and talked to him out in the street and told him, I said, hey, man, you know, I'm sorry, you know, for stealing your psych. Oh, man, Jesse. So I forgave you for that a long time ago. You always be my favorite thief. <laughs> and, and like, you know, I was 40 years old when I did, when I apologized to him and you can't believe the load it lifted. Cause like I see him in the Olympics and he went through cancer and all this other stuff. And he's obviously like a good dad and a good dude. And like, you know, for, I think it's pretty rare the opportunity to be able to, a mistake you made when you were a kid, how, rare of an opportunity is to be able to go back and make amends for it mm -hmm. you know because everybody does stupid stuff and if you could go back and like in a way reverse it a little bit and, and make it better you know it it made me you know because there's a lot of other ones in there that I can't make amends for so what was um what did you guys like about stealing cars so much i think we were really poor like really like you know no money no 
you know, no, both of us didn't have any parents to speak of. His dad was a Vietnam vet that was a little, like, you know, nuts. And, like, so we kind of just made our own way, you know. We kind of fed off each other. You know, I think Lonnie was a little bit crazier than I was, but, you know, I did my best to, like, outdo him. And I didn't, you know, I think some of the stuff, like Lonnie and I robbed a hamburger stand together and like Magnolia and Riverside. Yep. George's hamburger stand. And like I used the money to buy school clothes. And like I remember my dad was so pissed because he didn't know where I got the money from. And I had like these new I went to like the mall and bought like lamest clothes ever, probably in these new boots that were like a hundred bucks. And I remember he was just mad because I didn't have to like go to him to ask for it or whatever, you know. How often did you steal growing up? Um, pretty often. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think it was like a contest for us, you know? Like, we didn't really, you know? It, it what was, do you mean? Well, like, we, would, we had a contest who could come out of Radio Shack with the biggest thing. <laughs> and I remember I went in and got, like, a police scanner and, like, a Walkman and something else. I'm like, yeah, I won. And then Lonnie, who was... Uh, in my book as a Bobby, he walked out with the whole home stereo system. I'm like, oh, you, <laughs> you won. Like, just, and how like, did it was, I don't know. It was like some little Indian dude, you know, that ran the counter. He's just like, <laughs> just give him a mean look. And just <laughs> like, he didn't even try to stop us. <laughs> Tell about the one time you got confronted stealing from the supermarket. Oh, that was like the little Circle K store up the street from school. The guy like came and like, we were doing, we're, Lonnie and I were like taking jugs of milk and turning it upside down. This is like on high school break. Okay. So like we had like a 20 minute break and the like, the store was a, a block away. So we were like, I don't know what we were doing. We were like taking jugs and turning it up, turning it upside down. Just pouring the, milk out in yeah, the Yeah, dump, store. like putting them between the other bottles, just watching milk. <laughs> oh, you know, like we're, we're like 15 or 16 or whatever and like, the dude came and like, bam, grabbed me on the shoulder. And I'm like, boom, like knocked him out and like split, like went back to class. And you so, didn't think anything of it. No, I don't think anything of it. And like, woo, 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 woo. I'm sitting in like third period algebra class, Mrs. Baker. And I'm sitting there and like cops come in with guns and like arrest me right in the same class. And I was gone for like 60 days to jail. And then I got out of jail at like seven or eight in the morning and then walked from downtown to high school and I walked and got in the middle of third period got there in the middle of the same class where I was arrested and like walked right from jail to right back to the scene where I was arrested and like Miss Baker said hey Mr. James how was your vacation I was like it was good all right cool have a seat explain the robbery that happened that ended up adversely affecting your football career uh well like um we were stealing Camaros, like IROC Camaros. So, you know, I figured out how to like pop the door locks and hotwire the ignition. We could take them in like 30 seconds. And so like all my friends, like guys that work for my dad, like I would get them like IROCs, you know, for like 1500 bucks. <laughs> and like, it was really dumb. Like we were driving around stolen cars and like the dealership, we were just taking them off the dealer lots. And so like I had one half stripped in my, garage and then one with no wheels on it with 
in my driveway under a tarp and then I like came flying around the corner and wow, you know, like, you know, with, with the radio blaring and stuff. And there's like 20 cop cars and my dad and another cop sitting in my front yard. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I started the gas and I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm caught. So I pulled over and like stopped cops came, like handcuffed me. And the officer was, uh, his son, Shane, I had played with since the, Pop Warner days, and we played all through high school. His name was Officer Goldstein, and he told my dad exactly this. He says, "He's all Larry. I'm standing here handcuffed. They're standing behind me. He's all, why don't you just make a receipt, Larry, and tell him say he bought him from someone at a swap meet or something? Will this be done with all this?" And my dad said, "No, he's going to jail." And I remember I like sitting there, like feeling like my heart sink, like, oh. You know, like I, I heard that and then I probably was like, yeah, like I'm done, I'm free. And then like, oh. and then for that time, like I'd already had priors and stuff and just went, went for like, I think it was almost 90 days. So well, uh, why do you think your dad had you sent to jail? I would hope that like he uh, wanted, I hope he sent me for the reason that happened because I learned my lesson and like as soon as I flipped off like a light switch after that it was like really bad because I was this all-star player and so it was in all the papers or all the papers local you know and then I, I got out and it's like kind of the fallout like all the schools had come for visits while I was gone and like where's we'd like to meet with them and right and talk to him about visiting our school. Nope, he's in jail. Oh, okay, well, okay, see you later, you know. They don't come back after that. And so I had one option to go to junior college, you know. And How'd you find out? I think you found out you were in Parade Magazine the same time you found out about yeah, yeah, like the, the scholarship offers. Parade All-American right? and all that stuff. And like, it just kinda, it was, it sucked because it like, just totally like I can't think of anything more blowing it than that if that if I have one like fault in my life that I wish I could redo it's that one because like my life would have been way different I think you know I don't know if it would have been better but like you know big mistake um so you end up playing the only offer was uh, college ball and uh, junior college. Um, at one point, I think you're struggling, and so you want to make a change. You take the knee brace off for the first time in five years that you had just for protective purposes. And, you know, I think you have a great first half. You have like three sacks in the first half. And then what happens? Um, I got drilled. It was against Long Beach and got drilled in the knee, and like it was done. Like folded my leg up and tore out all my, my medial collateral and my ACL and like ruptured the meniscus and you know like tore it up pretty much the worst you can do it how awful was the hit it, it wasn't really that awful it was just like because he hit me when i wasn't looking it was just just the way angle and it hit my knee and like oh like drilled me in the knee but it's karma because like i did that same shit to people you know like i was vicious you know i would like you know, guys would try to headhunt me or whatever, like, like, you know, wide receivers and stuff, boom, I'd hit them right in the legs, you know? That was just the way it was, you know? 
So after a grueling recovery process, at least it seemed like you were going to come back when, you know, reading your book. Um, describe the setting and explain why you decided to stop playing. The setting was where it was in the tunnel on the bottom of the grandstands. And what's significant about that is like that tunnel is like I played in the same. We didn't have a stadium in high school. So for four years of high school and two years of college, for six years, I played at the same spot. And so that tunnel was like special to me because where the band used to come through and I used to make them stop, like stop there and play for a minute when you come through because it like marching band, like drums, you know, sure. boom, choo, boom, like gets me crazy. And so I was sitting right there in the spot that means a lot. And like, I remember Barry Meyer and Coach Brown, the defensive coordinator, they're like, sit down. Okay, you're all cleared to play. Are you ready to suit up and everything? And like, I had never really thought about not doing it. I think it's just kind of the way they approached me and like the way it went about, I just said, I, I thought to myself, I said, you know what, one day I want to have some kids and like pick them up and run with them. You know, and I was 18 or barely 19. And I just said, you know what, I'm done. How did your decision to stop playing make you feel? I don't know. Like, I don't really know what I felt. I really didn't have anything to, to fall back on. So I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I still worked at the shop, kind of, and then, you know, I got one of those jobs, like, you can make two grand a week, you know, and I flew to Seattle and worked in a shipyard for a year, you know, welding. I could weld, and I passed the test barely and got my Navy cert and went and did a welding job for, you know, a year, and it was, it was the worst, standing outside in the ice rain. <laughs> That obviously paid off. Um, that, I want to take you back once more to um, your, your younger days just to give the family life some uh, context. So when you were living at your dad's house, your real mom and your dad were separated. So you had Yeah, uh, yeah. My, my mom and dad uh, got divorced when I was like four. Mm -hmm. And like, and like, I don't know, I still don't know the whole story and I kind of don't want to. But like my dad was, my dad dealt drugs. You know, he was like a drug dealer and had like, he's talented at restoring furniture in a antique business. And he had the contract in the seventies to uh, fill all the TGI Fridays with antiques. Wow. So we would buy all these furniture and bass drums, him and my godfather. My godfather is Barry Weiss from Storage Wars. Okay. So him and my dad were like business partners in the seventies and like, you know, but they had like a whole other business. Like if you bought a buffet at the orange, at the Rose Bowl swap meet, it was 10 grand and it came with like a kilo of Coke and it delivered to your house. So they had like a, so fine. I don't really, that stuff's cool, but it doesn't, it makes a lot of situations in my life. Like, Hey, how come we're going to the Knott's Berry farm parking lot at three in the morning to meet some shady dude in the leather jacket? I'm tired. I got to go to school tomorrow. You know, right. stuff like that over and over again, you know, it just, I didn't really find out my dad did all this stuff, but my godfather finally broke it to me when I was 30 years old, you know? Okay. And it kind of like made it all make sense, you know? It made it like, oh, that's why it was the way it was, you know? And you wrote about your real mom that she wasn't a bad person. She just really didn't make much of an effort to be in your life at, at that point. But <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how do you view your dad? 
Well, my dad's like, he's like George Carlin mixed with Fred Sanford. You know, he's like a funny, charming dude. But right up until I was like 12 years old, and then he like, I don't know if it was like drugs or his, you know, lifestyle or or uh, what. He just like kind of like let this lady moved in, the bitch mom that like let her kids like, and they kind of infiltrated my life. Me and my dad had this rad relationship where we worked and hung out, and then he let this lady and her kids move in, and they kind of like screwed up the whole thing and like the kids were like stealing from me and like it just was you know wasn't a good situation you know and and I think my dad kind of like rode with that side and like I was the dick and like I was the problem and you know he kind of let her get in his ear about how terrible I was and like you know it all makes sense now that I'm a parent I've had kids that are getting in trouble and pushing their limits and stuff like that, then you understand like, oh, well, this is what he should have did. You know, he should have like, you know, kids want to know their parents have their back, good or bad, 100%. You know, like my mom has her faults when I was growing up, but only one parent came and visited me one time all the times I went to jail. And that was my mom. She came one time on Christmas, (laughs) you know. And she's here, she lives here now, actually, with us. And the girls love having her here, and it's like, it's great, you know? Your family's out of town. Um, you're in high school at the time, at your friend's house, and all of a sudden, you smell something burning. Yeah. Um, take it from there. So we were, this, I was living with my dad. I was 15, and uh, there was, I was at this girl, Kelly Parsons' house. And I was, like, down the street, probably a little bit past where the house, like, quarter mile away or something I'm like we're walking around the house like what's burning something's burning what is that like for like 10 minutes and then we look out my house is just crazy on fire and so run down there and like fire department was rolling up there and it just like torched the whole house to the it did torch the garage to the ground and then burnt the roof off the whole house and it was like um I remember my dad was married to this lady was kind of a bitch <laughs> and like like uh she had convinced my dad my dad was like up in ventura or something away for the weekend so he i was there by my house with the fire department and the house burnt down you know and like i'm like dealing with it and then my dad came home and uh by the time he had got home she had like fully convinced him that i had burnt it down myself like and like we i remember he st- what, what did your dad do when he it got was, there? We were in the living room with the fire department. We we're kind of salvaging whatever. And it was my dad and his wife and the fire to, fireman. And the whole roof was gone off the house. And my dad, remember my dad like got in my face. And I was like, you know, and I was always fearful of my dad. I never really stood up to him. But I just said, you know what? F*** you. Like that. And I remember my dad reared back and just pow, like hit me in the nose. Right in the face as hard as he could. And like. I kind of like stumbled back and then I just tackled him. And I remember we, I tackled him and we like went through the drywall and through a wall in the house and like just went at it. And uh, the fireman had to break us up and stuff. And that was it. I jumped in my car, carried whatever I could carry and I was gone. Where'd you go? Went to my girlfriend's house with her and her mom, you know? How did that impact you? Uh... Well, it sucked because everything 
despite being accused of burning my own house down, everything that got destroyed was mine because it was all the, my tools and stuff. And then, you know, one of my bikes, one of my Harleys was in the garage. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was probably the best thing to happen because it was not a great relationship with my dad and uh, my girlfriend's mom, Linda Carter, superwoman, <laughs> literally. But she like, uh, no BS, man. Like, hey, you get, you live here. You have to get a job. You have to do this, and you know, have to go to school. And like, living with it, it, uh, with my girlfriend and her mom, with and her boyfriend, her mom's boyfriend. It was kind of like my first experience of like a a family, you know. How did that feel to you? It was pretty cool, you know. It was like, you know, it. I don't know. You know, because I think I was pretty like hard solo kid. You know, I don't need help from anybody. I wash my own clothes, make my own dinner, do my own dishes. You know, everything from like eight years old on. So, you know, to live somewhere that like has a bunch of caring and like they care if you go to school, <laughs> you know, that that was a, a, a cool experience, you know, so, that, something I'm thankful for. Did that kind of keep you on the straight and narrow? I think so. Well, at least more so than when you were. Yeah, somewhat. Okay. <laughs> so you uh, end up leaving junior college when you stop playing football, your scholarships rescinded, you don't even have the nominal money to pay for the rest of your school. So you leave, you have a variety of jobs, one of which is as a bodyguard mm -hmm. and bodyguard for musicians on tour. I know you were bodyguard for the Red Hot Chili Peppers when mm -hmm. Nirvana and Pearl Jam were their opening acts. What was that like being uh, uh, it was awesome and fun for about one year. Okay. Then it like, I was good at it. So more responsibility got lumped on me, like tour management and accounting and collecting money and making sure promoters aren't ripping them off and stuff like that. And then bands, like dealing with horrible bands, like the Black Crows and stuff, which are just like, it's like glorified babysitting, you know, it got unfun. Then you're like in a different city five days a week, but I kind of, the best thing about it is I used it as R&D for what I'm doing now. So I went all around the world in five years, like four or five times. And so what I did is I went to every single motorcycle shop and motorcycle show I could in every country and like basically downloaded all that information and built my styling curve for what I know now, you know, and met a lot of people who I'm still friends with now in Europe and Sweden and stuff like that. And How much so, did it help, do you think? Oh, a lot, a lot. I think, you know, getting that global sense of what you do, you know, kind of opened your eyes. You know, there's other things and other craftsmen out there. And like, I remember the thing that made me stop more than anything else doing security work is I was sitting on a tour bus and I was watching a, one of those Easy Riders video cassettes like easy riders volume 15 or something and it had the grateful dead's bodyguard that did the security for them road security and man he's like some 65 year old just old washed up dude and he had this one like 
bike and then another one that was all apart and like he was bragging like oh yeah I've been with the Grateful Dead 40 years and this is what I got and I live in a trailer and I got this crappy bike and I was like oh man is that what my future is I'm done like I am not I want a better life and I remember uh Erie Vaughn the like bass player for Danzig like we were in backstage when this is towards the end he asked me he's like what are you doing well, I'm just sitting there. And he's just like looking at me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sitting here. We're waiting to go on. He's like, no. So what the f*** are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. What are you talking about? He's like, you're obviously too smart to be doing this. I go, he's all, why are you still on the road? Why are you still doing this? Why don't you go do something better with your life? And like, he was dead serious. And I was only 20, 21, you know, and I was like, okay, <laughs> like, you know, and then I did it. I quit and I got hurt. I dislocated my elbow back in Detroit and like. Tell about the stage dive. I was during White Zombie, like we were like having contests with me and some other guys to see who said stage dive and like I jumped and the crowd like parted like the Red Sea and I landed like with my arm in front of me and <laughs> dislocated my elbow. I like got up like and my arm went like boop, the other, like bent the other way. I'm like. And so I stayed on the road another month in like a cast and all that stuff. And I kind of came home after that tour and I was like, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> you did have an unfortunately tragic incident when a kid yeah, actually yeah. died in your arms when you were working security. How vividly do you recall that? It was a St. Petersburg or Orlando, like kid was like crowd surfing and stuff. And how old was he? He was probably, 13, May, 12, 13, 14, something like that. He wasn't a very big kid, but the guy reached up and like, boom, and like kind of the crowd was higher than the pit. On and that the, was a security guy. That yeah, did. the pit between the stage, you know, about a four foot gap, and they kind of like piled, and I was kind of sitting down, kneeling down on the side of stage, watching everything, and I kind of, you know, I've seen kids be pulled down before, but like, I noticed there was like a few, just a little bit too long where he didn't pop back up. Nobody was looking at him and I'm like, 10 seconds go by, I'm like, so I dove down there and the kid just like, kind of in an awkward position, like out. And like, I grabbed him and like, grabbed him, threw him up on the stage, grabbed him, ran out the door and I kind of like, right as I got out the door, outside, kicked the door open and got out, he kind of feel him just go, <sighs> like that and he was just dead, just stopped breathing and like, there was EMTs and they tried to revive him, but it was done. And it kind of like, man, I was so bummed. It's like, cause the worst thing you could have did to that kid is grab him and throw him out the back door and he misses the rest of the show. That would have been like devastating. Like, oh man, you guys are like, you know, I lost 40 bucks or whatever, you know, that's, but like to end his life for doing something that's like one of the last things you could do as a kid, you know, to have like, fun with a little bit of violence, you know, it just, it was just senseless, you know, really bummed me out, like affected me for a long time. What motivates you? Um, chat, the challenge for sure. If something's easy and I know I can do it and it's not physically, mentally challenging, then like, I'm not, on to the next thing that's impossible, you know? 
How would you describe what the creative process is like for you? Um, well, I mean, we live in a world where every, all the information is right there for everybody to get. Anybody who wants to Google or do 45 minutes of research can learn just about every trade now. <laughs> At least most of the lingo to sound mm -hmm. like they know what they're doing for a blog right. or a message board. So to, to cut new grooves and to, to do stuff that hasn't been done before and figure out new techniques and new processes and new way of thinking and doing things, that's hard now, you know, it's hard to be different and we're, you know. How do you do it? Uh, I think just pushing myself, you know, in this shop right here, there's a lot of challenging stuff that goes on. In fact, I was, you know, I'm, I figured out a way to forge Damascus steel, you know, like 3,000 year old technique. And so I make guns out of that now and make a gun that hasn't been made out of that before. And so. Which you'll spend like days months. forging a piece of, okay, of this steel I just, spent just for like month. one gun. I just spent a month and a half on a piece for a gun and it didn't work. <laughs> I guessed wrong on this, uh, the last final size and it was. 30 thousandths of an inch too thin. Um, I understand you can get inspiration from just about anything. I think even a trash can in Paris. Yeah. I think, yeah, like architecture, like I have a Tumblr blog. I follow a lot of architectural stuff on there and Instagram and that stuff like, you know, architectural metalwork and stuff is a lot of great stuff. And I think I don't really have a main source of inspiration, you know? I'm inspired by the guy that, you know, not the guy like me that's on TV for doing a job. Like, I would be irrelevant in 1942, you know? There was factories full of guys that were better than me using these machines. These machines came out of factories like that, that were, they spent, you know, they work three shifts, seven days a week, building airplanes and stuff, and no one thought of them as a hero. And what about um, the wartime manufacturing and World War II so interests you? It's just the commitment, you know, like the sacrifice, the commitment. You know, it's the, the pinnacle of this country banded together to, for a common cause. You know, we saw evil in the country and everybody, you know, if you weren't part of that, you were like a communist or you were a Nazi. You know, if you weren't saving plastic and tinfoil and stuff like that for metal, you know, for recycling, you were, uh, you weren't American. You know, like the, to me, the most pinnacle form of that is the Vallejo shipyard, which was the biggest shipyard in the country, uh, built, uh, class C destroyer in I think 37 days. 40,000 people at that shipyard and they built the destroyer from flat metal to a launched boat that was shooting headed to Europe in, or it's headed to the Pacific in 37 days. So you can't tell me there's some guys that didn't have to like work some free overtime and didn't have to get up on Sunday and work 15 hours and didn't have to sacrifice to like make that happen. 
you know, you know, and that, that to me, like it was the most amazing time. I wish I was around in that era. What's your fascination with the innovation in manufacturing? I think it's, it, it falls in line with that whole figuring out a new way to do stuff, you know, like, you know, I think cutting a new groove and trying to do stuff that hasn't been done before. I have to have one foot in these old machines and old ways. That's what separates me. You know, it's like, I think if people want to hang with what I do, then you have to like develop the skills that I've developed for 25 years. You know, that, that keeps people from fully copying what I do, you know, is by making, educating myself and making myself more skilled. And then I have to keep the other foot in like new technology because if you're not doing the new latest and greatest in some aspect, you're going to get left behind. How did the Discovery Channel show come about? Um, I fired an office manager at the shop and like was cleaning out her desk and I found a post-it note that said Discovery Channel filming several days, call ASAP on the side of her desk. <laughs> like a note she took and never gave it to me. And so they showed up like the next day and then like, man, we were like slammed at the shop. Like we didn't have time for anything like that. And I had done some like local TV shows and stuff like that and didn't really see a value in it. This is ni 1999. Okay. So I was like, uh, you know, we want to do this. We're going to be here for a month and blah, blah, blah. And like, I didn't really s see it as valuable. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. And it was like a fight from day one. Like, <laughs> like just like them trying to do stupid stuff. And it was Tom Beers and Hugh King who I'm still friends with Tom today. And then like, you know, we filmed it. And I mean, I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm Richard Pryor funny, but, <laughs> but I like went and watched it on the editing board, like the night before the show aired after the sound and everything was done. And I'm like, Oh man, <laughs> people are going to hate me. Like, cause I say, I just say what I feel. Uh -huh. I don't like, you know, if that offends you, I'm sorry. It's what I'm. It's also hard seeing yourself on TV for the first time. Yeah, too. for real, like right. an hour long show, right. like all about me. And so I like watched it. And I'm like, oh man, I didn't sleep at all that night. And then I was at the shop. It was like a Sunday night, I think. And I was at the shop working and like the show had aired and the New York feed on Discovery uh, at three o'clock and I like on the, it was three o'clock West coast time. It was airing in the week on the East coast and like the phone rang and it was some dude, it was a black guy from Detroit. He's all, man, he's all, is this Jesse James? I said, yep. He's all, uh, he's all, man, I saw you standing on the cliff in that show saying you're tired of kicking the world's ass. He's all, I know exactly how you feel, brother. Keep it up. And then I was like, dude, you know, I knew it was going to be all right. <laughs> how, how did your life change after that first show aired? Um, it was crazy, like, because metalwork and stuff is real popular now, but the, the one thing that, like, kind of made the record skip is me taking a piece of flat metal and hammering it into a gas tank. And, like, people had never saw that on a national TV scale. Like, I could take something by hand and make you know, something functional and cool looking out of it. And it like, 
I think that's that was it. And just like the bikes and the dogs fighting and just like this, like, I don't think they would air that show now. Really? I don't think so. Definitely mon- some of the Monster Garage episodes they wouldn't air now, you know. And I think it, it, it was crazy times because Discovery was almost bankrupt. And they were still like mostly bugs and planets and dinosaurs. And like the joke at Discovery was like, well, m- this is pre-internet. So it melted down the phone lines at the network. Shut their phone, their me- their their uh operator board your documentary yeah so it shut it down and the biggest show that was on before that was the the real story of jesus christ (laughs) which aired like five years before that and so that the joke was like jesse's bigger than jesus (laughs) (laughs) but it like so it shut it down and then uh so typical tv thinking like we need to do that every week (laughs) like so they immediately like came i think they aired it they aired it that sunday night and then they aired it every night for like months. <laughs> Just kept like, oh, keep going, it's good, right. keep going, you know, like, and they, you know, it, it, it became like the one, the highest rated show in the history of the network in 2000. And then uh, they came up with the Beers and I, they wanted to do a weekly series. So let's do something where in the arc of the show, like we start with one thing and then at the end of the show, it's something totally else. T- totally different like a, a VW bug we drive in and we drive out it's a swamp boat you know something like that and so was the most awesome negotiation ever so like Discovery said you know we did four episodes and we started filming the first episode was all my friends on the build and if you notice the first episode halfway through they had all split. They're like, this sucks. We're not doing, you know, no one was getting paid and no one understood the value of it. And they're just like, oh man, why are you making us do, I gotta go, I gotta go back to Florida and everything. So if you notice the the episode number one, the Mustang lawnmower, I'm there doing it by myself. Like, I didn't know how it was gonna be, but I'm like, this could be cool. And uh, we did it and we did, I think we were halfway through the second episode, then Discovery came, oh, we gotta negotiate the contract for four episodes. We're only gonna do four episodes and you're gonna get paid five grand an episode and that's gonna be it. We're not gonna do more. I'm like, all right, fine. And so they aired the first four and it was like, it's the most profitable show in the history of their network. They were charging the same ad rates as Everybody Loves Raymond and like, I became the highest paid person in the history of that network. You mentioned the money, you know, especially given where you came from, but I'd imagine the money accelerated really quickly for you given how fast the show took off. What was that like? Well, at the height of the brand, so the first show aired in 2000, in 2000, I mean, West Coast Choppers, you know, the most successful motorcycle shop in the country before the, TV show came. So, I mean, we were selling, you know, $100,000 at Sturgis for t-shirts in a week and stuff like that. Then the TV show came and then it was like crazy. We, I, I started selling stuff to Hot Topic and malls and I sold in 2000 and two, into 2000, 2001 in a year span, I sold $45 million at Hot Topic. <laughs> And then Walmart approached me. I was selling, making some little die cast models of bikes. Walmart approached me and asked like, 
hey, do you think, I had a friend that worked there, and in 2001, Walmart wasn't what Walmart is today. It was the dumping grounds. Nobody, Nike wouldn't sell to them, Adidas, you know, no name brand sporting equipment, no licensing. The number one t-shirt they had at Walmart was uh, Corona beer. And the most expensive t-shirt they ever sold in the history of that company was $9.99. And I came in, I, it was a hard decision because I like, everybody told me no. Like I had like president of Frito-Lay and like all these pretty good. Right. I asked everybody, I thought, man, should I sell? They really want to sell my stuff. And everybody told me no, except for my friend Kid Rock. He's all, dude, he's all, I wish I could have something that I could sell at Walmart. You should do it. And so I did it. And then yeah, you had all it, was, these, a, it like, was a big leverage. Executives of the board telling you no. And then Kid Rock's the one that. It was, I had to leverage that $45 million business one year after I just made it. Because I knew if I sell to a place that has, Hot Topic had 700 stores and Walmart had 3,200. So I knew I would be like, that's, that's what I'm betting. Right. And I did it and we sold a hundred million dollars worth in 60 days at Walmart. I came in at $21.99 for t-shirts and like sold a hundred million dollars in 60 days. It was so big. I mean, I remember I was sitting at a, at a bar in Vegas and like a sports bar. And I remember it came on CNN and it showed like my t-shirts on the rack at Walmart and it said, attention, all choppers. I was like, whoa, that's like, <laughs> let's like big time. And then, but that set the tone, you know, so the TV I did set the tone for all this TV we're dealing with now. And then Walmart set the tone for now. Walmart has their own licensing division and they're tied in with all the big movie makers. So they do tie-ins with the movies and stuff. None of that stuff existed. I came in, it was like, it was like, ducks like shooting fish in a barrel man it was like like i came in i had like i had 25 feet of rack with with uh toys and die cast toys from monster garage and bikes and like it wow. just it was we did we i did close to a billion dollars in sales in like nine years and uh off a handshake deal with them. I never sold anybody else. The people at Target like hate me still because I would never sell them anything. But I was like, man, if these guys are so good, why would I do anything to mess up with it? What are you thinking is, you know, $100 million in 60 days at Walmart as all this is happening? Uh, well, I'm business minded and I'm a hustler. So like I kind of, you know, wasn't really thinking about the dollar amount so much and so you know it kind of it was great though for seven or eight years it was a lot of fun a lot of fun figuring out products and doing products geared towards kids that kind of stuff was really cool but um you know it kind of got so big that it went away from me working with my hands you know I would never turn my welder on for months at a time and never you know, it was meetings and, you know, production meetings. And I was like a mid-level manager and kind of got kind of miserable. Yeah, you're successful, but I think that that kind of success is perceived success. It's so like, you know, like telling you I made $100 million on T-shirts. That sounds awesome, right? right? 
But you didn't have the lifestyle you but wanted to have. It makes me feel better about myself telling you I made a gun out of Damascus. <laughs> you know, because that, to me, I think is probably harder. Right. You know, more self-fulfilling. You know, more, you know, you, life you kind of learn what you're supposed to be doing. You know, and, and I can do it and I can do mass marketing and mass retail and product design and all that stuff. I have a real knack for it think the way my dad brought me up but you know I'm fully belong uh working with my hands what would you say is your favorite monster garage creation uh oh I think there's a couple there's one where we did all the old timers all the most the we did a 54 Chevy customized with all these famous car customizers from the 50s and 60s that had never worked together before. And it was like just amazing, like guys that had built the Batmobile and stuff like that. And I, like it's one of those weeks I didn't want it to end, you know, and it just, just, just was cool. And then the, the, we did that Iraq Confidential, which was like the last build that I'd left and did on my own. In Iraq. You had to foot the bill. Yeah, we did that one, and that one was kind of meaningful because it was like shining a positive light on people that are risking their lives and not really, you know, in 2005, no one wanted anything to do with Iraq. So that was cool. And then the, I did that one for this kid, Tyler, that died of cancer, like dedicated a build to him was cool. There's like 100 episodes. There's a lot of good ones in there. I forget about some of the ones we did, so... What would you say is the most satisfying experience you've had? Uh, as far as builds? Uh -huh. The flying car was pretty cool, you know? Uh, that was cool because it was on 60 Minutes. That was, that was pretty, pretty cool. And like, I think it was Walter Cronkite said my name introducing the segment. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Right. <laughs> like, that was like, oh. I knew that was cool then. <laughs> I think as far as the most satisfying, I think probably the flying car, probably the hardest build to do in five days and pull it off. And I don't know, it was a challenge for me, you know? They're talking about bringing it back. They've been wanting to. I know Beers actually talked to a friend of mine yesterday. Actually, my father-in-law, I talked to him, saw him at some restaurant. And they're working on bringing it back. So, with you involved, they can't do it without me. <laughs> so what, what? Like they've already tried like three or four times. It doesn't work. No one's gonna crack the whip like me. So what's your interest level in doing that? I think it'd be cool. You know, it, it was a fun show, and it was like, it's gonna be the yard. Anything else I ever do on TV, that's the yardstick, which is co compared right. with you know. And I'm never gonna do some lesser monster garage show and like, mm -hmm. oh, it's like. Master Garage or something, you know, right. it's like, uh, you know, and it kind of, I don't know, I think we should, I think we could start air doing it and start airing it right away. And I think so many kids and so many careers and so much inspiration has came from people out of that silly show that I think it, it's timing is even better now. So before the Discovery Channel show even started, you know, your business, West Coast Choppers, was already a, a big success. Um, I want to take you back to an early meeting you had that really seems to be, from what I understand, one of the key meetings of your career. The company's just kind of in its infancy, 
and you get a meeting with a company called Custom Chrome. Mm -hmm. When my dad had his drug business, antiques, him and Barry, they had a warehouse in uh, Paramount, like North Long Beach, California, and they shared a warehouse with Perry Sands, who owns Performance Machine. It's like, and they, he was just starting his business. So I went right to him and got a job working for Performance Machine for a year to learn CNC machining knowledge and all that stuff. And then I left and went to Boyd's. Well, while I was at Boyd, what, at Perry's, he made these wide tire kits and they were taking super sh like Taiwan stamped fenders from Custom Chrome and like cutting them offset and welding them together so bikes could have a fat tire on it in the early 90s. And like I was welding those up and it was terrible. The metal was like Taiwanese steel, which like isn't the best quality because it's ground up cars with like plastic and rubber in it. So when I went to Boyd's, I kind of kept thinking about it a better way. In the like 93, I really started to like learn metal work and I went and apprenticed with a guy up in for a couple weeks up in San Jose named Ron Covell and then like came back and I'm like man I want to make a fender on my own and so I started making fenders in my garage after work and I met this a guy named Skeeter Todd <laughs> at the Laughlin River Run he's all and he worked for uh he, he, he worked for a company that was like the competitor of Custom Chrome. He's like, you should call Steve Fisk. I go, I'll buy as many as you can make, but anything else, Fisk will buy too. And so, I, you know, it got crazy. I was like selling them for like seven or 800 bucks a piece. And I was like making 700 bucks a week salary working for Hot Rods by Boyd. And then I was making 15 grand a week welding in my garage at night. And so then I started to sell the distributors so they could go global. Well, uh, I have some Hell's Angel friends, like Custom Chrome requested it. Some bought some fenders for, directly from me to look at them. Well, I have some Hell's Angel friends that I met when I was a bodyguard that are in like Singapore and China. He took the fenders and sent them right over there and tried to have them copied. Oh, wow. And like... What was your reaction when you found out? My friends knew, I was pissed. My friends sent them back, or said they, the Taiwanese turned it down because they're too hard. We can't make those. We can't do this here. And so they sent them back. And I knew about that, and he didn't know about it. And so we had a meeting, and he says, you know, I told him, I said, hey, this is the price, and I want every one of these fenders to have my name on the inside of it, Jesse James, West Coast Choppers, like a brass tag. He said, he's all, why would we do that? He's like, he said, I can understand if your name was like Arlen Ness or one of the big names in the industry. I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe someday I'll be big in the motorcycle industry, but that's just the way it's going to be. And he said, no. So I was like, all right. Two weeks later, they, he called and agreed and sent me. And I, I can remember this is like a pinnacle part of my business. I got a fax. I rented. I had my. Sh I left Boyd's. I'm making fenders and building bikes on my own. And I got a fax machine in the shop. And that sound, like, you know, the fax coming through. And I remember like a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar purchase order came over, and it was like just me. I didn't have any employees or nothing. I'm like, oh, how am I gonna do this? <laughs> and like so buckled down and I farmed out a little bit and hired a welder and fired him and then I was by myself again and then you know just figured it out you know but that was like to me that's when 
like one of the most successful points in my life where I knew like, oh, like, whoa, like the facts coming in, custom Chrome, this big order. I should have been looking at the profit margin though. <laughs> That's where I messed up. Really? No, well, it was good for what it was, but like hindsight, distributors only make, make the lion's share. Who are some of the notable people you've made bikes for? <sighs> oh, like Ty Law from the Patriots, uh, Shaq, obviously, uh, every wrestler, like Diamond Dallas Page, the Big Show, like, you know, Steve Austin, like, uh, who else? Like all of them. Like all, it was like a rite of passage to be a WWE wrestler in like the early 2000s to like 2005, 2008. You weren't an official wrestler unless you had one of my bikes. <laughs> what was involved with making Shaq's bike? I mean, he's a big dude. Um, I took a I took a picture of him in the seated position, like on a bike, and then this is before like CAD CAM stuff. Was this like 2001, 2002? And then I took uh, I measured, I had him sitting there with his positions, and then I put it on my computer screen. This is like floppy disk days. And like took uh, dividers and measured like his distance and stuff with reference points that were pre-measured on the bike mm -hmm. and figured out the dimensions of how big it needed to stretch to look normal with him on it. How big the tank needed to be underneath him so it didn't look like a peanut. Right. You know, and, and did that and like made it. So it like he said it's the only vehicle he's ever had that like made him feel normal size. Oh, know? that's cool. Yeah. I understand if you didn't like somebody, you would not make a bike for them. And I mean, I think there's notable that's, example in like that's Limp still Biscuits. company policy today. Limp Biscuits <laughs> frontman Fred Durst, you turned yeah, down. Yeah, I'm friends friends with. We became friends after that. Okay, but he wanted to like jump in line, and I want a bike, but I don't want to wait. I want to like, sorry, click. <laughs> and then he's the dummy. He went and told everybody. I told him that. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Is there anybody uh, you've taken satisfaction in turning down? Yeah, Sylvester Stallone. Really? Had bought some like brand new yellow Ferrari and a yellow Corvette and then wanted a yellow bike to match and then had his like manager call. I'm like, oh, sorry, no yellow. <laughs> like hung up and then he called me back like, what the f***? Like, what? I'm like, sorry, dude, I don't paint stuff yellow. Yellow is like the universal color for chicken. Like, nope, <laughs> won't do. And they were like baffled, like, cause he had money to spend and I just, nope, no yellow bikes. When did it stop being fun? Uh, I think when the shop got so big that like so many employees and like, I had some like really good friends, you know, I kept it in the family and like 20 year friends working for me. And like, I kind of busted a couple of them stealing for some pretty big six figure embezzlement and stuff like that. And that like, oh, wow. it was just like, it just like kind of took the wind out of my sails, you know, cause people in your life that you trust the most. And then, you know, I didn't really learn what it was until later, you know, it was like some deep seated envy, you know, cause we, kind of came up together and weren't on the same economic scale. So they thought they were entitled to what they took, you know, and, and, and it, it just kind of bummed me out, you know, kind of, it, it, I don't know. It's just like, you know, I think like married to Sandy too, like everybody, it got real weird, man. It like, 
it was a whole like people were fans and then it was just like it it just got crazy you know crazy around the shop and people friends like that i knew everybody treated me different and how so just I don't, it, it just, I don't really, can't really verbalize it, but it was just like a different, different thing, you know? That's when people really started like annihilating me in the media, like from day one with that whole deal. And like, you're just in like really talking down, like I'm someone that prides myself of being a craftsman and like honing my skills and learning and doing stuff the best possible way. And like my core of what I preach is always about that and always positive. And then it just like the media was just relentless and vicious about, and they used, you know, calling me a grease monkey or a mechanic in like a derogatory way where that's, you know, negative. Like I'm a lesser human because I work with my hands and that, I think that stuff kind of got to me a little bit. I didn't really, you know. I know at one point you had as many as 145 people on your payroll. Um, you know, you kind of felt like it was getting too, too big for you. $415,000 a month. Oh, wow. And (laughs) that's what was my nut I had to cover every month. And you fantasized, I think at some point about just ridding yourself of all of it. This. Why did you ultimately? I talked about this for probably six or seven years, man. I just want to go somewhere and have a shop where I work from home and I can spend time with my kids and my wife and like, and just work in peace and like, but I think we get on that treadmill, you know, you get that perceived success, you know, I'm driving Ferraris and got a house on the beach and I'm married to some movie star and like this big old business and a TV show and all that stuff. Life's must be perfect. Right. (laughs) You know, but you know, I don't think I was ever really comfortable in any of it. You know, I always felt like out of place, like, like all of a sudden I'd been thrust into this spotlight, but really what inside, I'm just a welder and a mechanic. And like, I'm supposed to be like laying under a car dirty. I'm not supposed to be at some red carpet or that type of stuff. Man, I was like, I don't like the person I became, you know, I like really forgot about what's important and forgot about myself, you know, doing what makes me happy. I kind of like started doing stuff, everything, for what I should be doing or what everybody thinks I should be doing. It's just, it's just like, it got so big and lawsuits and divorce and just all this stuff. It just tornado of bullshit. And just like, I just one by one started chipping away all the stuff that wasn't, didn't make me happy and didn't fill my soul up, you know? You wrote in your book, um, Tuesday, March 16th, 2010, was the day I understood exactly how much I'd been given. It was also the day I learned what it was like to lose everything. Um, you, you get the call that morning from Sandy's publicist. Yeah, I mean, it was, I don't know. That whole thing, it just ended bad. And it was like, I made mistakes and, and did stuff that I shouldn't have. I handled the situation not the way I should have. And you know what? I got divorced and lost a kid I adopted because of it. So, you know. What was the hardest part of the whole situation for you? I think uh, losing my son that I adopted. So for sure, you know, not being able to see him and 
and see him grow up and all that stuff. And whether that's fair, whether I should have lost a kid due to infidelity, which I don't think anybody ever does is, but or anybody ever does, but I think with Hollywood law, <laughs> that's totally fair. So how do you handle a situation like that with your kids? Um, well, it was obviously emotional time for the older kids and stuff. They didn't have a real close relationship with her. So, but you know, I just told them the truth. You know, I didn't try to pull any punches or just told them what I did and what happened and told them what, you know, and was truthful with them, which, you know, was painful for everybody. I think everybody was more, the painful part was about uh, Lewis, who we adopted, you know, that was the tough part for everyone, you know, but we toughed it out in California and then we just picked up and moved. You know what, this place isn't for us anymore. You know, there's like 60 paparazzi sitting in front of my house for six months. And how severe did that get? It was pretty bad. I beat the shit out of a bunch of them. Really? Yep. What'd you do? Just wait till the night, till they didn't see me coming and like, you know, <laughs> or run their cars off the road. You know, it's fair game. They're trying to make my life miserable and make money off of it. So I should be entitled to do the same. You just got to be sneaky about it so you don't get sued. What you learned from going through that whole experience, that, you know, that time of your life when for a period, I mean, you were the poster boy for everything you didn't want to be. Well, it's... At least in the media. It, uh, the media stuff is just business. That's nothing personal. They can call me a Nazi and a racist and an adulterer and a horrible father and all this stuff, but that's, that's just a money-making business. The, right. more, the worst things they say about me and the worst headline, the more magazines they sell. And it's not just me, it's whoever. The part that I learned is like, you can't make a change in your life and change the person you are because like in, you know, I quit drinking right after I came on TV and like really made an effort to change, but I'm still hanging out in a geographic location, which is like where I got in trouble, where like my gangster gangbanger friends all live, where we all grew up, where we all stole stuff and where there's like a bunch of stripper hood rats coming by the shop and stuff all the time. And so how can I make myself a better person and expect to like, be a husband and make the right decisions when I'm constantly surrounded by that negative influence, you know? And like, I, you know, in that whole situation, I should have just left. But you know what? I mean, as bad as stuff was between us, we adopted a kid and things got kind of good for a little while. And we had that kid to focus on and then boom, it was over in 24 hours, gone, done. You know, so in the relationship part, I was able to like kind of put out, you know, okay, it's over. I messed up really bad on a global scale and everybody knows it. And I had to stand up in front of media and take full account for what I did. I took it all, man. All I told the truth, held myself accountable for what I did wrong and took 100% of it right on the chin. You know, and, and nobody does that. Everybody denies it. All the publicists, everybody I talk to, like, oh, do you want me to deny it? You're like, this isn't true, is it? You know, everybody's ready for a denial. And like, hey, you know, I don't care about them and I don't care about perception. I care about myself and what, um, you know, what's gonna make it better. And, you know, I think, and then look at where I am now.
Would I be in the same place if I just denied it and tried to save face? To what extent do you think the perception was fair? Fair. What does fair mean? <laughs> I think the adultery part was totally fair because I made big mistakes and did stuff I shouldn't have. And so I deserved what I had coming. I, I think the whole Nazi part of it wasn't fair. You know, I think that was like, and I think it was fueled by her and her publicist. They could have like, they knew that stuff wasn't true. And they like, you know, someone had sold that picture to Us Magazine. And so obviously I'm joking, mm -hmm. you know, and, and. But you think they had involvement in that? Well, they didn't try to like, cause they asked them like, hey, is Jesse a Nazi? Like, is it true he's part of the Nazi party? <laughs> like, or some <laughs> like that. And their exact, her exact quote to like Us Magazine was, that's not the man I married. I'm like, oh God. So it just like poured gasoline on it and made it erupt. And it's like, that stuff kind of hurts me because man, I grew up in like an all black neighborhood and like, you know, I, we adopted a black son, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. and like, not because he was black. My, my requirement for the adoption was like, Hey, I want the kid that needs us the most. I don't know. That stuff, I think going back to the fairness of it, that stuff was unfair. Why decide to go to rehab? Um, I think like things like life, and I think there was certain stuff that like, you know, uh, I'd got myself in similar situations for years, not with adultery, but just with getting myself in trouble and drinking and like, you know, I think drinking for so many years was a giant band-aid for, for stuff in my life. And then once I, once I quit drinking, I filled it up with just like overworking myself and working myself till I was delirious. And like, you know, and I think I've, since working so much, you know, I felt a lot of resentment towards other people. And it just like, it was just a bad situation, you know? And I like, wasn't the best dad, you know? I, I just, like, just couldn't make it work, you know? And I think stress and everything else, like, Actually, uh, Dan talked me into it, you know, said, man, maybe you should go get some help. Did he? Yeah, you know, and, it, and you know, oh, you, I don't need no help, <laughs> you know, but then when you're all by yourself in my shop and there's a million paparazzi and I can't go anywhere and everybody hates me and I don't have any friends and you start feeling like the weight of the world, you know, it wasn't a nervous breakdown or anything that was like that. It was just like, man, you know, how is this happening? Why, you know, and it's, if it was something that I didn't cause myself, then I think it would be easier to digest, you know, why, why me, you know, like, but it wasn't why me, it was like, hey, me, me, you know, I did it, you know, I created this tornado of bullshit for myself, so like, how do I fix this? How do I be, you know, and like, just got in my car and drove there four in the morning, told Carla, hey, you gotta watch the kids and split, didn't tell anybody I was going, didn't do anything. And I went and like, let me tell you, man, it's the best gift you could ever give to yourself. If you've suffered any kind of like abuse as a kid or drug abuse or anything like that to go give yourself the, I didn't even know what was wrong. I sat there the first couple of days, like look at all these stupid, f you know, depression. And like, I, I'm not, I'm not like that. You know, right. I'm, I'm fine, you know, but you know, but I'm the guy that like just ruined my marriage because I banged some stripper.
So, you know, it ruined my life. So there's gotta be some kind of flaw in my personality that made me like think that was okay. You know, so, so I went and it, it's the best ever. How did it make you feel the first time you opened up in a group setting? Oh, <laughs> it, it was good. You know, the, it was a, it was kind of, it all of a sudden, once you put, no one ever, they don't go in there, oh, this is, oh, look at, you're up, this is what's wrong with you, this is what you did. They don't do that, you know, they like make, you have to realize it for yourself, you know, and for three quarters of the process, you're still like, kind of, man, what, what, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And all of a sudden, man, it just clicks like, oh, this is what happens, you know, and it's, it's, it, you know, and like the kind of upbringing and the kind of stuff that I was around is like basically the same stuff that like, you know, con, you know, career felons and, and people on death row and stuff have, you know, they go through the same kind of like abuse and trauma and stuff like that. That's what the, you create out of those kids, you know, and like for me to like kind of pull through it and like, you know, see it for what it really is. And like, I owed it to my kids. That's, I, you know, I did it for myself first and foremost, but you know what? I owed it to my kids to like be a hundred percent the best dad I could be, you know, and like do the, put in the hard work, you know, three therapy sessions a day, sometimes four, Wow. you know, to like, you know, you can't, you can't pull the weed out unless you get the root, you know, you got to go in there and like figure out what the problem is and what, what you need to do and rectify it and then basically and leave it all there. Describe the role playing exercise you participated in. Um, that was one that sucked because I like I had a, a girl you like each member in the group like becomes a member of your family or particular instance in your life and like a girl was me and like she was me at seven years old when my dad broke my arm and so like you know uh, like to stand back and see her act me out, man, it was powerful. It like really got me because I think you're, you know, you just, when some stuff like that happens to kids, you either like turn to like milk toast or you get tough. And I got tough. You know, I was a tough, mean kid. Like no one, you know, I didn't fear anything and I could fight my way out of anything. And if I didn't have something, I stole it. So like that, that's how it was. And I think that stuff, all that tough guy stuff was a big masquerade for like, there's this kid that's like scared of his dad's gonna beat out of him, you know? And like, you don't really, realizing it later and doing something about it, you know? That's what I did. How much different is life today than it was then? Well, I still have the same welder and it still works exactly <laughs> the same. <laughs> so not much different in that respect. Um, I. I think I'm a better person. I think I've embraced my craftsmanship in my life more and like, you know, s five years after the fact, you know, it's like, uh, uh, I think I've, I could have went one way or the other. Right. And I think I've made the right decision. I mean, stepping out here and seeing where I work every day, it's like, why'd you move from California? It's like, duh, look how awesome it is here. You're also newly, manufacturing guns. Mm -hmm. What led you to start getting involved in that? Uh, I came, well, California weren't allowed to own anything. So uh, once I came to Texas and got my concealed weapons permit and then, you know, got 
ATF approval. So I just started buying machine guns and all this cool stuff. And then I, and then like once I got every cool gun that I've ever wanted, then I'm like, oh, what I, I could make one better than that. Looking at parts and looking at the way stuff's put together. I took a pistol apart about four years ago or five years ago. And I like machined a new stainless slide and made billet grips and trigger job and had it all engraved and everything. And I posted it on like internet or Instagram or something. And then like someone that knew a prince in Kuwait, a friend of that called me and said, yeah, this guy wants to buy three of those. I'm like, they're going to be like 25 grand a piece. He's all no problem. I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm in the gun business now. (laughs) So yeah, I like, I still passionate and I still love bikes, but I've built 450 bikes in the last like 10 or 12 years. So it's like, and I feel like my style and the skill set that I'm doing is there's no one to push me. There's no one that's really pushing the envelope like we have for so long that, you know, it kind of, I'm only entertaining myself. Well, the gun industry, I, I see like it's pushing me and, and how my skill set it feels like what I'm supposed to be doing because like doing stuff for military and law enforcement, like my craftsmanship skills and meticulous way about doing things can like save people's lives and give them better weapons, quieter, better shooting. You know, that's like kind of cooler than a bike, (laughs) like a bike. You could look cool, you know, pulling up to the bar, but a gun, you know, to have put it in the hands of our military, that's going to make them safer and, you know, superior weapon. That's kind of a higher calling, I think. What are the goals with the gun business? Um, I st- will keep, still keep the, I don't, I only want to make about a hundred rifles and a hundred handguns a year. And we'll keep the, uh, that is like the core business, you know, each one's done for each customer, you know, and we've had some pretty awesome stuff we've built. And then we have a whole military side where products were developing for military stuff and trying to help them, you know, suppressor system and some other stuff we're working on. So, and that business could grow and be pretty big, you know, be a military contractor and, and that's, that's stuff we're working on pretty good. So many years down the line, where do you see this place? Uh, I'm staying here. I think, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I only have like eight guys at the shop and one Jeff and one accountant and Chandler, my daughter's over there, but I don't want it to get bigger. You know, I have no interest in like more buildings and more machines. I say that, but I have a new machine I just paid for today when I went to the bank on my bike. (laughs) So it's coming here now. So, (laughs) you know, and I already have a bunch of new CNC machines over there, but I just, I'm, I kind of, my eyes are wide open and I'm not trying to, I'm trying to do stuff in a different way now, you know, keep, be, you know, keep the success to not just what other people's think and make people think I'm a big shot, but like, you know, keep it, you know, happy and fun and creative. That's it for my chat with Jesse James. To check out more from our interview, including Jesse testing out some of his custom firearms, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.